Good morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that we celebrate an empty tomb. This is the day that we remember that although Satan and his demons tried to stop it, although the Romans put guards in the way to stop it, although there was a 3,000 pound stone to stop it, although there was the seal of Pontius Pilate embedded in that stone, warning anyone touch the stone and you die, that stone was rolled back. That seal was broken. The soldiers became as dead men. Satan and his demons stopped celebrating. And Jesus victoriously, permanently, gloriously rose from the dead. He is indeed risen. He is risen. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Isaiah 53. We're going to look at the biblical account from the Old Testament. And for those of you who regularly attend, yes, I have my Dave Mahler on. <laughs> every Christmas, every Easter, I dust this puppy off and I put it on. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, who conquered death, conquered the grave, conquered Satan, conquered our sin problem, and through faith in your Son alone as Savior and Lord, we are cleansed, we are adopted, we are forgiven, we are redeemed. You're justified, declared righteous, as your son's righteousness is imputed over our sin, and we rejoice. God, move as we talk about the gospel, salvation by faith in your son alone, from the Old Testament. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I don't know if you would know the name Judge Ben Lindsay. You might know it perhaps if you lived in Colorado or if you were a student of history, but Ben Lindsay became a judge in 1902 and served for 28 years until he was really drummed out of Colorado. He was removed from his judiciary and then went to California and served on their judiciary. Now, you may wonder if you know who Ben is. Why is Jeff talking about him? Ben Lindsay and Jeff Hines would have like nothing in common. And that's true. We'd have almost nothing in common. Uh, he was so progressive in the roaring 20s that Pope Pius XI wrote a letter asking him to be disbarred. The populace drove him out of the judiciary in Colorado. If you can think of the most progressive possible positions and then somehow apply it to the 1920s, that would be Ben. So why would I talk about him, Judge Lindsay? Well, there's something else about him that I think he and I would share. We would agree on. 
He's called the kid's judge. Now, he took his judgeship in 1902. In 1902, if you were an 11-year-old and you committed a crime, and there was also a 31-year-old who committed the same crime, you would be judged in the same court with the same standards. You'd be placed in the same cells and you'd serve exactly the same terms and there would be no separation. That's pretty harsh. We often expunge minors or we seal their records after their terms have been paid. But that wasn't true in the 1902 to 1928 time period. Wasn't true at all. Not until this man came to rule, to judge. He started the first juvenile court system. He began to insist that kids were separated from the adult population. He asked that after their terms were served that there might be an expunging or sealing of their records, something that did not occur. And so he took matters into his own hands. When 1930 came about and he was pushed out of his role and moved to California, he had thousands and thousands of folders of records, all juveniles. And he thought to himself, what would happen if an 11-year-old who served his time, paid his debt to society, got his life in order, married someone, had children, what would happen if his record got in the wrong hands and it were published, it would ruin his life. And so in a day and age, long before they had anything that could cut up paper, he spent days, even weeks, ripping up every single file. Now we wouldn't do that today and probably for good reason, but that was his choice. There was no shredding machine. And then he invited the public to come and the media to come. And he took all of these files and put them in a huge burn pit and set it on fire and burned all the records. Now, I don't know what you think of that. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. But I want to tell you that my God one-upped it. My God one-upped that. If you and I, by faith, have placed our confidence in Jesus Christ as Savior, at the judgment, Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for, Christ, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We read in Psalm 103, verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins, our confessed sins, from him. Isaiah tells us in 118, though our sin be as scarlet, he makes us white as snow. John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He won up Judge Lindsay. In fact, he did better than that. Judge Lindsay insisted that criminals serve their time. Jesus was willing to serve our time for us. 
For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. That through him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus one-upped it. He not only expunges our confessed sin from us, removing from the east is from the west, but he was willing to die as a payment of our sin that we would not have to die eternally. He offers eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is some of the message from Isaiah 53. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with Isaiah 53, but it was written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ. And in Isaiah, in chapter 7 and 9 and 11, we have the birth narratives that God becomes man. And then in chapter 53, we have the crucifixion narrative that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, went to the cross, paid the penalty of sin, died and rose again. Now, a skeptic, at least a skeptic maybe 70 or 80 years ago, might say, well, that's all well and fine, but what probably happened is that the book of Isaiah was written 10 or 20 or 30 years after Jesus was on earth. And that's why Isaiah got the narratives right. Except that will not do, will it? Because in 1946 to 1956, in Qumran, Israel, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. 802 biblical scrolls. Since then, another 120. So we have about 930 biblical scrolls, including two completed Isaiah scrolls. And because of the coins that were right next to the scrolls, and dated coins at that, because of the pottery that they were in, and we can date pottery, because of the cuneiform, the way they were written, the letters, and because of radio 14 or carbon 14 dating, we know that we have scrolls that predate what Jesus did by a couple hundred years. So this is prophecy fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled in some of our lifetimes. Let me pick up and read from Isaiah 53. I want to read starting in verse 3 all the way to 10. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. Those who had cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later cried out, Crucify him! And they rejected him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces. We know from the Gospels that Jesus was beaten not once but twice. The cat of nine tails, leather whip, embedded with shards of glass and metal and sharp bone, capable of ripping out hunks of flesh. He endured that because he saw you and you and you and me. And out of love for us, he went to the cross. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. They drove spikes into his wrists and his ankle and a spear in his side. He was crushed for our sin, our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That is sin 
and the penalty of sin, which is death, was put on Christ. And then he rose again. The tomb is empty. And we place our faith in Christ. And peace is brought to us. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We have turned away everyone to his own way. There's not a righteous person in this room, in this state, in this country, in this world. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The gospels tell us the high priest Caiaphas questioned him and Jesus refused to answer. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was judged guilty. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Matthew 27, he was put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to death or grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father. Listen to some of the words that are spoken of our Jesus. Grief, sorrow, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. Our iniquities were put on him. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. Feel special, feel loved. Our immorality our bigotry, our hatred, our materialism, our greed, our sharp tongues, our improper thoughts. We laugh at sin, we toy with sin, we play with sin, we're drawn to sin, and every sin that you and I commit was thrust on Christ for our sake. He the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that through him, through the righteousness of Christ, we might become righteous. It's unbelievable. God became man, lived a perfect life, never sinned, went to the cross, was covered with our sin, died. Satan rejoiced. The demonic partied. The Romans thought their problem was gone. The Jewish leaders thought they had done away with Jesus. And on the third day, that stone was rolled back. And Jesus physically, bodily, gloriously, permanently rose from the dead. And now he's seated at the right-hand side of the Father. And he prays for his people. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he prays for you. Now we might say, wait a minute. Jesus died, I'm sure, for some and took the sins of some, maybe the best among us. Maybe Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or maybe St. Augustine made the cut. 
or maybe even Peter, but not me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know where I've been. Listen to Romans 4, 5, great news. And to the one who does not work, that is the one who's not trying to earn their way up the ladder to heaven, a non-existent ladder, to the one who does not work, but believes in him, Jesus, who justifies. Who does he justify? The ungodly. The one who justifies the ungodly, the ungodly's faith is counted as righteousness. I don't know about you, but that's a bar I can reach. I can reach the bar for the ungodly. And the Bible says it's not by my works. I can't get there by my works. But if I believe in the one who justifies the ungodly, I will be saved because of what Christ has done. The Bible says in our text that he was a man of sorrows. I don't really get that. I think if I had designed redemption, I would have set down Jesus as a superhero, an avenger with all sorts of superpowers. But that's not what happened. God also took on human flesh, fully God, fully man. And according to Philippians 2, he veiled his divine attributes. He emptied himself. That means that when bad things came his way, he didn't call for the angels. He didn't use his superpowers and thrust the bad away. He knows what it is to hunger. He knows what it is to thirst. He knows what it is to be on the other side of the pilot whip. He knows what it is to have the crucifixion. He endured all of it because he saw you. He saw me. He loves us. And he wants to save us, forgive us, redeem us, justify us. Give us eternal life with him in heaven. He knows what it is to have people cry out, Hosanna, son of David, and then crucify. He knows what it is to even have two brothers, James and Jude, who early on, they thought Jesus was an imposter. After the resurrection, they write scripture on behalf of their half-brother Jesus. I love what Hebrews 4.15 says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in all our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every port and yet is without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to live in human flesh. And he lived perfectly and then died, went to the cross. I think what happened on that Thursday that Thursday, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He went down the Mount of Olives. At the bottom is the Garden of Gethsemane. Just to the left is the wall, the ancient wall of Jerusalem. Just inside is the Temple Mount, where today you see the Dome on the Rock. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, pray, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Pray, and they fall asleep. And Jesus prays three times. And he says, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. And we wonder, what's the cup? Some might say, well, it might be the crown of thorns. It's not. It might be the spittle that people hurled at him or the invectives that they hurled at him. It is not. It might be the nails in his wrists 
and his ankle, but it is not. Those were horrific. He will die from a bloody beating, loss of blood, and literally asphyxiation as he's unable to bring breath into his lungs. But that's not the cup. The cup is our sin. The one who never sinned. The one who had perfect fellowship with the Father for all of eternity past and for all of eternity future will have that perfect fellowship broken. So Jesus will cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The cup is the very sin I play with, I toy with, I wink at, and yet that sin was thrust that for our sake he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He died, was placed in another man's tomb, was there for several days. Somebody asked me just before the first service, did he descend into hell? There's actually nothing in the Bible that says that. It's the second version of the Apostles' Creed, the corrupted version that said he descended into hell. Actually, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. But he conquered the holder of hell. And the stone was rolled back. And he victoriously, gloriously, permanently rose from the dead. In this regard, I think of an event. It was December 25th, Christmas Day, 1776. The Continental Army was not doing well. They needed a victory. They needed to change the tide of the war, the Revolutionary War. They were up against the Brits and the Hessens, the German mercenary soldiers. And so George Washington came to his men, 2,500 men. He said to them, grab enough powder and balls and flint and food. That's all you're going to need. We're going to cross the Delaware, which is almost frozen. We're going to march through the night nine miles to Trenton, and we're going to attack the enemy soldiers. At dawn, we will attack. He's got 2,500 soldiers. They're freezing. They're hungry. They haven't slept. His artillery commander, Henry Fox, said, it was a plan of infinite impossibility. And there was a code name, and the code name was this, victory or death. In other words, we're throwing it all in. We're either going to have victory or we are going to be destroyed as a new nation. Victory or death. Jesus crossed the river. He went from life to death back to life. And there's a phrase, and it's not victory or death. It's victory through death. That's how he bought redemption. He died, was buried, and rose again, victory through death, that if we would believe in Christ, we would have eternal life. But first, first there was the cup, the cross. What does verse 10 say? He was crushed. The Lord crushed him for us. One scholar has written a book, a bit heretical, and he called this, Cosmic child abuse. 
The father abuses the son to save us. Bad theology. Terrible theology. Our God is Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three separate persons, but yet one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so when the Son suffered, the Spirit suffered, the Father suffered. But even if I can't understand the mysteries of the Trinity, I get this because I'm a parent and a grandparent. The richness of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday grew as I had children and grandchildren. If you're a parent, a grandparent, a great-grandparent, you've probably said something like this. You've seen one of your loved ones suffer and you've said it and you believe it. I would take it upon myself. And it's more painful to me than even to them. And we would die for those offspring. And we believe it and we mean it. Cosmic child abuse? No. When the son suffered, the father suffered immensely. But they both willingly suffered because they saw you and you and you and you and me. They saw us in the midst of our sin and they offered to rescue us from our sin. Remember Romans 4, 5? Who does he justify? The ungodly, not the one who tries to work. It's kind of like this. Uh, yesterday with my granddaughter, I painted a piece of pottery. I thought about bringing it this morning, but I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> I've got like no talent whatsoever. In fact, I didn't know that the rainbow, there's some kind of little monomic advice or nomic advice, you know what colors go. I got to the second one and my granddaughter said, that's the wrong order, Popo. <laughs> what do you mean the wrong order? And then my wife said the little phrase and then my daughter said the little phrase and then my granddaughter at age five said the little phrase and I thought, I'm not bringing that puppy to church. <laughs> not doing it. Do you think Michelangelo would be impressed with my work of pottery and painting? Do you think Picasso would be impressed with my little stick figures? Do you think if I made a paper airplane, NASA would be impressed? Do you think the best of your good works or my good works would impress a holy, holy, holy God? It is ludicrous to think that somehow you and I could be good enough to somehow earn our way into the presence of a holy God. What does the Bible say? He justifies the ungodly, those who stop trying to work and those who believe in Jesus Christ. I think of what Paul says. This is the apostle Paul. He said, who will rescue me from this body of sin? Who's going to do it? I'm such a mess. Praise be to God. It is Jesus Christ. Who rescues us from this body of sin? It's not ourselves. It's Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ. I think of Romans 10, 9, and 10. 
If we confess, we agree. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we are saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's faith in Christ, belief in Christ, belief that he died, that he took the cup, that he was buried and on the third day he rose from the grave offering eternal life to you, to me, if we would receive him as savior. The tomb is empty. He is risen. It's victory through death. Well, just a couple thoughts. First, we are the sheep who have gone astray. Verse six. We are the ones who have sinned. And Jesus says the wages of sin is death. And we can pay the penalty of our own sin by being separated from God for eternity. We can try and earn our way in the presence of a holy God. Or we can believe that Jesus is God, drank the cup, paid the penalty, which is death, was buried, conquered death as the evidence of the first fruits, and say, yes, become my savior. Yes, I serve you. Yes, give me eternal life. If you've never done that, won't you do so today? The second thing, if you've already accepted Christ, or even if you accept Christ right now, you and I need to stop toying with sin. Sin is so tantalizing. We play with sin, we wink at sin, we joke about sin, and every sin we committed was put on Christ. Rather than being attracted to sin, I ought to be repulsed by it. And finally, if we know Jesus, we ought to be the most joy-filled individuals. We ought to be walking around saying, I'm saved. And we ought to try and get to know this Jesus. Reading his scriptures, talking to him, which is just prayer. Being in corporate worship on a regular basis. Making Christ the priority of our lives. There's so many things that become our priority, our job, our recreation, our free time. But Jesus rescued us. He conquered death and he rose again to give us eternal life and he wants a living relationship with us. If we know Jesus, let's make Jesus our top priority. I want to end this morning by simply reading one of the resurrection accounts. It's from Matthew 28, verses one to seven. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, 
I have told you. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice today. Your Son, our Savior, is risen, conquered death. The stone couldn't hold him. Satan's glee couldn't stop him. The Roman soldiers become as dead men. The stone was rolled back. The seal was broken. And your son physically, gloriously, permanently rose from the dead. We praise you for this. And Father, if there's someone here today that is trying to earn their salvation, their stripes, may they believe that they're a sinner as we all are. And our sin will keep us from you, a holy God. But Jesus paid the penalty of sin, which is death, and then conquered death and rose again. And may each of us in this room, may each of us in the other campuses, may each of us online, by faith, believe in your son Jesus as Savior. And may we be forgiven and granted eternal life. And for we who know Christ, may we live for Christ, know Christ, grow in Christ. Make your son the priority of our lives. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.